Please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Our passage for this morning for the second week in a row is Philippians 3, 4 through 11. Let's begin by reading this passage together in its context, starting in verse 1 and continuing through verse 11. So again, that's Philippians 3, 1 through 11, focusing in, starting at verse 4. Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. At all stages in history and in all manner of places, Christians have often suffered terrible pains for the sake of the gospel. Consider, for example, the case of John Hooper. Born March 1st, 1495, Hooper was made Bishop of Gloucester in March of 1551. He was a fervent advocate of the Protestant Reformation and has been called by some the father of nonconformity. So when the Catholic Mary Tudor, who is also known by history as Bloody Mary, ascended the throne in July of 1553, it soon became apparent that Hooper's days were numbered. He would die as a martyr, burned at the stake February 9, 1555. What makes Hooper's death so remarkable is how greatly he suffered and how patiently he endured it. According to John Fox, author of Fox's Book of Martyrs, when the time came for Hooper to be bound to the stake and burned, Hooper refused to be bound, choosing instead to stand in the flame by his own power. Quote, now when he was at the stake, three irons made to bind him to the stake were brought, one for his neck, another for the middle, and a third for his legs. But he, refusing them, said, Ye have no need thus to trouble yourselves, for I doubt not, but God will give me strength sufficient to abide the extremity of the fire, without bands, notwithstanding, suspecting the frailty and weakness of the flesh, but having assured confidence in God's strength, I am, confident, or I, I am content ye do as ye shall think good. 
So the hoop of iron prepared for the middle was brought, and when they offered to have bound his neck and legs with the other two hoops of iron, he utterly refused them and would have none, saying, I am well assured I shall not trouble you. Regrettably, the sticks, or as uh, Fox calls him in his antiquated English, faggots, that were used to burn Hooper were relatively few in number and rather green. And this meant that Hooper's burning became an unfortunately prolonged affair. Three different times they tried to light the fire that would kill Hooper, only for the fire to struggle to burn. Fox describes the scene as follows, and uh, just so you know, I've actually redacted some of the more gruesome elements to this account. He says, Anon, commandment was given that the fire should be set too, and so it was. But because there were put to no fewer green faggots than the two horses could carry upon their backs, it kindled not by and by, and was a pretty while also before it took the reeds upon the faggots. At length it burned about him. But the wind having full strength in that place, it was a lowering and cold morning, it blew the flame from him so that he was in a manner no more but touched by the fire. Within a space after, a few dry faggots were brought, and a new fire kindled with faggots, for there were no more reeds, and that burned at his nether parts, but had, no small, power, or had small power above because of the wind, saving that it did burn his hair and scorch his skin a little. In the time of which fire, even at, as at the first flame, he prayed, saying mildly, but not very loud, but as one without pains. O Jesus, the Son of David, have mercy upon me and receive my soul. After the second fire was spent, he did wipe both his eyes with his hands, and beholding the people, he said with an indifferent voice, For God's, uh, for God's love, good people, let me have more fire. And all this while his nether parts did burn. For the faggots were so few that the flame did not burn strongly at his upper parts. The third fire was kindled within a while after, which was no more extreme than the other two, and then the bladders of the gunpowder, which were placed around his neck, break, which did him small good. They were so placed, and the wind had such power. In the witch fire he prayed with a somewhat loud voice, Lord Jesus, have mercy upon me. Lord Jesus, have mercy upon me. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And these were the last words he was heard to utter. He knocked his breast with his hands until one of his arms fell off, and then knocked still with the other until the renewing strength of the fire, uh, with the renewing uh, of the fire, his strength was gone, and his hand did cleave fast and knocking to the iron upon his breast. So immediately bowing forwards, he yielded up his spirit. Fox says, thus was he three quarters of an hour or more in the fire. Even as a lamb, patiently he abode the extremity thereof, neither moving forwards, backwards, nor to any side. But having his nether parts burned and his bowels fallen out, he died as quietly as a child in his bed. And he now reigneth as a blessed martyr in the joys of heaven, prepared for the faithful in Christ before the foundations of the world, for whose constancy all Christians are bound to praise God. It's rather shocking, is it not? Both that people could be filled with such hatred for the gospel that they would subject a man to such a horrific mode of death and that a man would be so committed to Christ that he would be willing to endure it. Perhaps more shocking even still, 
is that this could happen after Christ's resurrection from the dead. This morning, of course, is Easter, and Easter is supposed to be a time when we celebrate the victory of Christ as we remember His resurrection from the dead. And yet, as we survey history and we recount stories like that of John Hooper, it's rather easy to wonder just what kind of victory this is. After all, we would expect a victory to be followed by peace and security. We would expect the victors to enjoy a certain measure of prosperity and rest. And yet from the time of the apostles on, Christians have actually suffered for their faith in Christ. Again, it's the common story of the church throughout the ages. We may not experience it to the degree here in America that John Hooper did, but you can trace the history of the church starting with the apostles, and what you discover is that church history is a story that's often written in blood. This is the case even up to the present day. Again, you may not think that persecution is a common occurrence today because of the security that we enjoy where we live, but in fact, it's widely accepted that more Christians died for their faith in the 20th century than in all the preceding 19 centuries of church history combined. Estimates range anywhere from 45 all the way up to 119 million martyrs in the 20th century. In fact, I don't know if you heard the news this morning, but uh, even earlier this morning over in Sri Lanka, uh, four hotels were bombed along with three churches. And uh, as of the, the time of this worship service, well, I was checking beforehand, the death toll is now over 200 people and still rising. Christians going to their Easter services, killed for their faith. Where's the victory in that? The resurrection is supposed to proclaim life, and yet the church's story is so often one of death. At Easter, we remember that Christ conquered the grave. Well, if that's the case, then how come it seems like the story of the cross is just being replayed over and over again in the lives of countless Christians throughout the centuries? Why is this taking place? And perhaps even more importantly, how do we hang on? I mean, you, you take a look at a John Hooper. And he not only refused to recant his beliefs, he not only willingly suffered this kind of a death, but he even refused the bonds meant to keep him in the fire. He was willing to stand in the fire by his own volition. Where does that sort of strength, to suffer so greatly for Christ, come from? These are questions that every Christian must wrestle with. And I say that because, mercifully, while we, while we may not all suffer to the same extent as a John Hooper, at the same time, the Bible tells us, it flat out tells us that if we follow Christ, then we will f experience some form of persecution. At least that's what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12. He says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Persecution, rejection, suffering, that's the price that comes with authentic Christianity, plain and simple. And so if we make any effort to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, these are questions that we are eventually going to face. Why is it that Christians must suffer so badly for the gospel? And even more importantly, how do we manage to persevere? 
These are questions that Paul is addressing for us in this morning's passage. Paul, of course, was incredibly familiar with suffering. You read the list he provides of the sufferings that he experienced for the gospel in, in 2 Corinthians 11, and it's hard to fathom how any one person could endure such pain in a single lifetime. Referring to certain false teachers, he says, 2 Corinthians 11, 22 to 28, he says, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman, with, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. What, what kept Paul going through all that? I think about that reference to once being stoned. You all know what a stoning is, of course. That's when people try to kill you by hurling large rocks at you. I mean, just pause and think about that for a moment. What would it be like to be stoned to death? I pictured not just the pain of having rock after rock smash into your face and torso from every side, but picture the hostility of this crowd that's surrounding you and the extreme hate that they must feel for you to want to kill you so violently. Picture the helplessness of being surrounded by this crowd with nowhere to go and realizing as they start picking up the stones that there's no way of preventing what's about to happen to you. There's no way of escape, nowhere to run. There's just this dread in the pit of your stomach as you see them picking up the instruments of your execution. I mean, what, a, what a pitiable and disgraceful way to die. Paul went through all of that, and remarkably, he survived. We learn of the event in Acts 14. Paul was preaching in the city of Lystra and having success among the Gentiles when it says, Acts 14, 19 through 20, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went to Barnabas, or went to Barnabas with Barnabas to Derby. Again, stop and think about that for a minute. Not only does Paul get back up and go back into the very city where he was stoned, but he then went on to the very next town to continue preaching the gospel there. I would imagine that most of us, after being nearly stoned to death, would say, well, I guess I learned my lesson, right? I'm not doing that again. We'd say to ourselves, that's it. I've done my part. I've completed my tour of duty. Someone else can take it from here. And we would think that would be very reasonable. Certainly God wouldn't expect us to give any more than that. But not Paul. Paul endured that agony and then he got up, brushed himself off, and carried his bruised and broken body to the next town to tell those people about the victory 
of Christ's resurrection from the dead? Where did he find the strength to endure such pain in the service of the gospel? In this morning's passage, he explains where. As Paul writes this passage, he sits under house arrest in Rome, and he's about to stand trial before the most powerful ruler on the planet, at which time he may very well be found guilty and summarily executed for his faith in Christ. Meaning he's suffering once again for the sake of the gospel. The Philippians that he's writing to, they're also suffering for the gospel. We learn this at the end of chapter 1 when Paul tells them, It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here I still have. Even more than this, it would seem that this suffering is starting to get to the Philippians. They're starting to crack under the pressure. They're apparently turning on one another as they blame each other for their suffering. They're probably also considering the adoption of circumcision as a kind of doctrinal compromise which they think could put an end to this suffering. And so as Paul writes this letter, at least one of the reasons he writes to them is to encourage them to stand firm for the gospel. Again, we see this toward the end of chapter 1. After Paul describes his present circumstances and right before he mentions their suffering, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the sake of the gospel. As we come to chapter 3, we discover that one of the ways that Paul does this, one of the ways that he encourages them to stand firm for the sake of the gospel, in spite of their suffering, is by pointing to his own example. Again, Paul hears this report about their suffering, which has been brought to him by this messenger named Epaphroditus, and as he hears about their response to it, he identifies several critical errors in their thinking. And one of these errors has to do with the way that they're processing suffering. Essentially, they think suffering is bad. That's why they're complaining to one another about it. That's why they're considering doctrinal compromise as a means of alleviating it. It's all because they think suffering perhaps shouldn't happen, or at the very least, they need to avoid it. Now, this isn't to say that Paul would say that we should not avoid suffering, because he would. Over in 1 Timothy, he even instructs Timothy to pray for their leaders for this very purpose so that they might not suffer for their faith. I mean, Christians are not masochists. We don't take pleasure in our pain and seek it out. Even still, Paul would say that the Philippians lack a certain perspective on their suffering, one that will allow them to embrace suffering with joy so that when it does come to them, they can endure and not try to run from it. Paul has this perspective. It's partly what he means when he says later in chapter 4 that he's learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. He knows how to suffer. He knows how to endure with patience. And so what he tries to do here is share this perspective with the Philippians so that they can join him in his suffering by imitating his pattern of thought. In the process, he not only explains why Christians must suffer so badly for the sake of the gospel, but he also answers this question about how to endure. He explains what fuels his endurance. 
So what was it that caused Paul to endure so much for the sake of the gospel? We began looking at the answer to that question last week. Verses 4 through 6, Paul begins by explaining the former status he once enjoyed before he became a Christian. As I said last week, there seems to be a couple of reasons why Paul begins here. The first has to do with the immediate context. Up in verses 1 through 3, we learn that there's this Judaizing influence that has been either intentionally or I think more probably unintentionally encouraging the Philippians to adopt the practice of circumcision. Due to the Philippians' respect for Israel's role in God's plan of redemption, they consider these Jews to be a legitimate source of spiritual authority. And so after warning the Philippians about the fundamental error in their teaching, Paul flashes his spiritual credentials. He says, verses 4 through 6, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. The Philippians are wondering who to believe on the proper interpretation of the Old Testament. And Paul's point seems to be, if the issue is a matter of credentials, just know I've got more. It would be very easy to think that the reason why Paul preached the message of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus was because Paul wasn't a very good Jew. And Paul shuts that line of thinking right down. He didn't become a Christian by necessity. If salvation is according to one's ethnicity, one's descent from Abraham, he's got that covered and then some. And if it comes through one's obedience to Moses, he had that covered too. So Paul's credentials check out. If they want to hear the truth from an authentic Jew, then they need to go to Paul. These guys aren't half the Jew that Paul is. The second reason Paul starts here has to do with the point that Paul is building to, which is the appropriate perspective on suffering. It can be easy to forget as Paul sits under house arrest in Rome, but life wasn't always like this for the Apostle Paul. There was once a time when, when Paul was one of Israel's rising stars. I think you get a real sense of this when you become acquainted with Paul's letters. When, when you start to realize some of the theological connections that Paul makes, which even the apostles apparently had a hard time understanding, you begin to understand that Paul was someone who was going to have an impact on the world one way or the other. He's simply brilliant. Paul reminds the Philippians of this point. Again, he wants them to understand that he isn't here by necessity. There was a time when he had it all going for him. So what changed? What happened? How did Paul go from being one of Israel's favorite sons to now being so hated by his own countrymen that the Roman authorities actually had to intervene to save him from them? Paul explains verses 7 through 9. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Again, we took a look at this part of the passage last week. And I explained that 
what Paul says here is that he was willing to exchange both his former self-righteousness and his personal comfort all for the sake of being, quote-unquote, found in him, found in Christ. If we're wanting to understand why Paul was willing to suffer, why, for instance, he would get pelted with stones and then pick himself up and move back on to the next town, only for this to all start over again, this is why. He wanted to be found in Christ. As we got further into this passage, we started to understand something of what this meant for Paul. You look here at verse 9, and he talks about having a righteousness Not of his own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. As I explained, it's typically assumed that when Paul makes this statement, he's referring to a concept known as imputation. Imputation is the idea that when a believer places their faith in Christ, Christ's righteousness is counted or imputed to the believer. Basically, God looks on the believer as if they have performed all of the obedience that Christ performed, and this is what enables God to be pleased with us. He sees us with the very righteousness of Christ. And of course, this is the great exchange that takes place in the gospel. When Jesus goes to the cross, he assumes the believer's debts so they might inherit his righteousness. And this all happens through what's called the believer's union with Christ. Essentially, when we identify with Christ by faith, God no longer sees us as two separate entities. Instead, He sees us as one. And so just like a husband and wife will merge their financial accounts when they're married married and, and assume both one another's debts and assets, that's essentially what happens at faith through the believer's union with Christ. The problem, though, is that this doesn't seem to be the kind of righteousness that Paul is talking about in verse 9, this imputed righteousness that comes from Christ. Now, that's not to say that this concept isn't in the passage, because I think this is precisely what Paul is referring to when he says he wants to be found in him, in Christ. He's saying he considers his former righteousness and even his present comfort rubbish, scubalong, literally trash or even dung, all for the sake of being found in Christ with that imputed righteousness. This is why he's turning his back on his status and performance as a Jew. It's because he understands that salvation can only happen by grace through faith in Christ alone. But that said, that's still not the righteousness that Paul is talking about in verse 9. And I say that because as we jump down to verse 12, Paul continues his remarks by saying, both with respect to the resurrection, which we're going to talk about in just a minute, and with respect to this righteousness, quote, not that I have already obtained this, speaking of the resurrection, or am already perfect, speaking of this righteousness. And that doesn't make sense if Paul's talking about imputed righteousness in verse 9. Because we are presently counted perfect by God on the basis of this righteousness. Because it's this righteousness, it's based on Christ's perfect performance under the law. So it doesn't seem like Paul can be talking about imputed righteousness in verse 9. Instead, he's probably talking about his actual performance. He's saying he wants to be found, meaning he wants to be proven to be or even judged in Christ based on this obedience. 
which he notes does not come through his performance under the law, but which comes through faith in Christ. We noted this last week, that Paul is actually very insistent on this point throughout his letters. He not only states that the law is powerless to remove the penalty of sin, but also that it is unable to overcome the power of sin. Both the believer's justification, meaning his right standing before God, and his sanctification, meaning his ongoing growth in personal holiness and conduct, they both come by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. Jesus is responsible for all of it. And in fact, we saw this is precisely the way that Paul talks about righteousness earlier in this letter. You go back to chapter 1, verse 11, and you can see that Paul prays that the Philippians would be, quote, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the praise and glory of God. The point there is that he wants them to have a kind of personal conduct that's empowered by Jesus so that God can get the credit for it. And this is precisely what he's driving at here as well. Paul wants to be found in Christ, and that means having a kind of personal conduct that's been empowered by Christ. The one points to the other. And in fact, I said that this is what Paul is really after here. Yes, he wants to be found in Jesus, but what that means specifically in this instance is having a righteousness that demonstrates that relationship. In short, Paul is saying that he's thrown away his status as an Israelite and a Pharisee in order to have the type of life that demonstrates that he's in Christ. Let me say that one more time because this is critical to what we're going to be talking about here today. If you want to understand what Paul is getting at in verses 10 and 11, you have to understand what he's saying in verses 4 through 9. And you have to understand what he's saying in verse 9 in particular. So if you're taking notes or something like that, write this part down. Paul is saying that he's thrown away his status as an Israelite and a Pharisee in order to have the type of life that demonstrates that he's in Christ. I'll say it one more time. He's thrown away his status as an Israelite and a Pharisee in order to have the type of life that demonstrates that he's in Christ. Again, listen closely. We're talking about conduct, performance. Paul has traded one kind of performance, the kind that's found in the law, in the law for another kind of performance, the one that's found in Christ. Because this second type of performance, the type that's found in Christ, points to the fact that a person is in Christ and therefore a recipient of all the riches that are received only through Christ. Are you tracking with me here? Again, when Paul says, I traded this kind of righteousness for that kind, he's not just talking about merit. He's not just saying that he gave up trying to earn his status before God in favor of receiving a salvation that's given by grace. Instead, he's talking most particularly about a certain mode of conduct. He traded the conduct that's characterized by law-keeping for a conduct that's instead characterized by faith in Jesus Christ. And the reason he's done this is because he wants to be found in Christ. He wants to have the conduct that points to his relationship with Christ because, again, it's by being in Christ that Paul will inherit the riches that come through Christ. 
Now, the reason why I take the time to review all of this is because of what Paul says down here in verses 10 and 11. As we come down to verses 10 and 11, this is where things get really interesting. This is where I think this passage really opens up, and hopefully some of you are going to have a eureka moment today. The light bulb will go on, and you'll go, aha, I've got it. Because what Paul says down here in verses 10 through 11 answers the question about why Christians suffer so much for the gospel. And it answers the question about where guys like Paul or John Hooper find the strength to endure. And if you understand these points, it will transform, I think, not just the way you see suffering, but even the way you understand the resurrection. Up to this point, I've said that we can break this passage down into three parts. There's Paul's status in verses 4 through 6, Paul's exchange in verses 7 through 9, and now Paul's perspective in verses 10 and 11. This is where Paul offers the Philippians a different way of looking at their suffering. And in order to best explain what Paul is saying here, I want to organize his thoughts into two desires, because I think that's what we find here. Paul has two desires. He's given up everything to be in Christ. Why? I think you can explain it in the form of these two desires. The first desire is this. Number one, to be one with Christ in His resurrection. Why does Paul surrender everything for the sake of being found in Christ? It's because he wants to participate with Christ in His resurrection. Again, you see this in verses 10 and 11. Paul says, He surrenders everything that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings becoming like Him in His death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. If you want to understand why Paul would surrender this former manner of life and lose everything for the sake of Christ, this is really what it comes down to. It comes down to being found in Christ, meaning that he gets to participate in his riches. And Paul wants to be found in Christ and receive those riches because that includes his resurrection from the dead. When we talk about Christianity, probably the first symbol that pops into our heads is the cross. And that's for good reason. The cross is the ultimate demonstration of God's love. And the obedience that Jesus performs there as He suffers for our sins in our place is the very basis of our salvation. So it makes sense that the cross serves as the defining symbol of our faith in that respect. But if we're talking about the image that really sets our faith apart from every other one, the one that even silences the assertions made by every other religion. It's not the cross so much as it is the empty tomb, the resurrection. Because it's the empty tomb that demonstrates that Christ's sacrifice has been accepted by the Father. In fact, if the tomb is not empty, then it means that the cross accomplished nothing. Jesus died in vain as a consequence of His own sin. This is Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, when he says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. The resurrection is the proof that Jesus can deliver on the promise of eternal life through his sacrificial death on the cross. Again, think about that for a minute. Almost every other religion claims it knows the way to eternal life. 
But only one religion can substantiate those claims in the forms of a physical resurrection from the dead. And that's Christianity. Only Christianity has someone who has already been raised from the dead unto eternal life. You can only imagine the effect that this thought would have had on Paul as he lay before the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus, as he's on his way to persecute Christians. I mean, here's this guy who thinks he's got it all figured out. He's followed the ways handed down to him by his forefathers. He's made every effort to understand the word of God and to attain the standard of conduct that's ascribed in the law. And he thinks that in this, he's found the way to eternal life. He's so certain about what he believes that he's actually traveling to persecute those who are, in his mind, perverting it. And now there stands before him the very man he's been persecuting, risen from the dead. Can you imagine how badly that shook Paul up about what he believed about life and the world around him? That changes everything. I mean, it's one thing to say you have the words of eternal life. It's another thing altogether to prove it. And so just like that, Paul completely flipped. He went from persecuting Christians to becoming their greatest champion. That's the power of the resurrection. So now the one thing Paul's after, the one thing he wants more than anything else is to get in on that, to participate in the kind of resurrection that's already being enjoyed by Christ. There's a lot of debate nowadays about the regulation of health care. And in this debate, it's argued that one of the reasons why health care needs to be regulated is because health care has what economists call an inelastic demand. Meaning it doesn't matter, uh, it doesn't, uh, uh, matter how much you charge for health care. The demand for it stays about the same. Supply and demand tends to work when you're talking about hamburgers or automotive parts. Because once the price gets steep enough, people say, you know what, I'll just eat mac and cheese, right? <laughs> I'll take the bus and I'll walk. You can't say that when you're talking about your next chemotherapy treatment. And there's good reason for that, right? It's because you can survive the loss of many things. That's what allows us to put a price on them. It's because we can do without them. The one thing you can't survive is the loss of your body. This is why healthcare has an, is, an, is an inelastic product. You can charge practically anything you want for healthcare, especially life-saving healthcare, because there's nothing that people tend to value more than their very lives. I mean, what good is it to be rich and dead, right? So you'll give up everything for that chemotherapy treatment because without it, all the money in the world does you absolutely no good. Well, Paul's done the math. And he's realized it's the same way with eternal life. He'll give up everything to gain eternal life because eternal life is an inelastic product. It's like what Jesus says in Matthew 16, 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? You could be the richest man on earth. You could be Alexander the Great and Napoleon Bonaparte and Genghis Khan combined and you could conquer the entire planet but if it meant suffering in hell to do it would it really be worth it? And the answer is a resounding no. There's nothing more precious than one's own soul. 
So this is what Paul is after, and this partly explains why he's willing to suffer so much to be found in Christ. It's because being in Christ and sharing with him in the power of the resurrection is worth literally more than anything. Again, it's all, it's all scuba long, trash by comparison. So Paul will give it all away if that's what it takes. It makes me think of the parable of the pearl of great value. You've heard the parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl, the parable of the pearl of great value. Jesus tells these parables back in Matthew 13. In the parable of the hidden treasure, a man stumbles upon a treasure hidden in a field, and because of the surpassing worth of the treasure, he sells everything he has to buy the field. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like that. And in that parable, the point is that someone who has relatively little in this world would be a fool not to trade in everything for what Jesus is offering. That's a story that's aimed at a, a Matthew Levi, a tax collector and a sinner. Spiritually speaking, tax collectors don't have much. And so for them to trade in their spiritual poverty for spiritual wealth, that's a, that's a no-brainer. Right after that, Jesus tells the parable of the pearl. And in that story, a rich merchant comes across a pearl of exceedingly great value, and realizing his fine, the merchant sells everything he has to buy the pearl. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like that too. And the point there is that even someone who has much in this world would still be a fool not to trade in everything for what Jesus is offering because what he's offering is worth much, much more than all of that too. That's a story aimed at a guy like Paul. And after seeing the resurrected Christ, Paul gets it. If joining with Christ means walking away from his former self-righteousness, if it means enduring the scorn of his countrymen and being an outcast among his people, if it costs him his freedom and even his life, Paul says, that's a trade I'll make every single time. No doubt, no hesitation. That's an absolute steal. So again, if you want to understand why Paul would surrender this former manner of life and lose everything for the sake of Christ, this is really what it comes down to. It comes down to being found in Christ and getting to participate in his riches. And that includes his resurrection from the dead. You can't put a price on that. It's worth literally everything. So then we can get a better sense of why Paul is willing to make this exchange from what we see down in verses 10 through 11. He's willing to surrender everything for Christ because in Christ, Paul gains the resurrection from the dead. And you can't put a price on that. That makes sense. But it still doesn't answer for us how suffering is such an essential component in this transaction. Again, the question we're asking this morning is, how is the message of the resurrection compatible with Christian suffering? Why is church history stained with the blood of the martyrs if Jesus has conquered the grave and is now seated at the right hand of the Father? This seems completely incompatible with Christ's victory. And this is what Paul explains with his next desire. And again, I think this is where the passage really, really opens up. Everything snaps into focus right here. Desire number two, union with Christ in his death. Paul doesn't only want to share in Christ's resurrection. He also wants to share in his sufferings. Again, verses 10 and 11, 
Paul says he surrenders everything that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This can sound like an incredibly strange thing to want. I mean, Jesus was crucified, right? Even more than this, he suffered the wrath of God himself on the cross. Who in their right mind would ever want that? And in order to answer that question, you have to go back to what we were saying last week. In fact, if you look here, verse 10 is just a continuation of verse 9. This is why I say you have to understand Paul's point in verse 9 to understand his points, his point in verses 10 and 11. 10 and 11 are a continuation of verse 9. And again, what was the point in verse 9? What was I so insistent about, about the meaning of righteousness there and what Paul is actually after in that verse? He wants a conduct that comes from Christ. Because it's that conduct that will, will enable him to be found in Christ. Again, I pointed this out last week. Jesus says in Matthew 7 that many on the day of judgment will claim that they knew him. And what will he say to them? He'll say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He rejects them on the basis of their deeds. And that's not because he's saying that salvation is by works. Rather, it's because of what he says in the first half of this statement. Their lack of works is evidence of the fact that he never knew them. The idea is that relationship with Christ inevitably produces a quality of life that looks like Christ. Jesus works in the believer, and he works in the believer to the result that they begin to resemble each other. This is why Paul wants the one righteousness over the other, the one that comes from Christ instead of the law, and tosses that stuff out in the garbage. It's because he wants to be found in Christ. Since again, being in Christ means sharing with him in his resurrection. And Paul understands that the way that one is found in Christ is according to this mode of conduct that comes from Christ. That's what points to the relationship, this Christ-empowered righteousness. Well, friends, guess what that kind of righteousness looks like? It looks like a cross. See, Paul's understanding of union with Christ doesn't just mean that we share in Christ's resurrection. It also means that we share in His life. All of it. It's not just a legal standing we enjoy. No, it means that we abide in Christ and He abides in us. And through this abiding, that we're made like Him in His resurrection, that's certainly true, but it's also through this abiding that we're made like Him in His life. And what does that mean? Well, firstly, right, it means that we're going to be like him in his righteousness. But then secondly, and as a result of that righteousness, it also means that we're going to be made like him in his death. Keep in mind, the world didn't care much for Jesus. In fact, they put him on a cross and killed him. And so what's going to be the inevitable result of those who are conformed into his image? They're going to be treated like him. This is why Paul can say that all 
all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's because this is how the world will inevitably respond to the righteousness of Christ. It will reject it. So if you're made like Him, then at least at some level, they're going to reject you too. This is what Jesus tells the disciples back in John 15. He says, John 15, verses 4 through 8, He says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. And if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now, do you hear that? This is very similar to what Paul is saying in Philippians. The one who abides in Jesus' words and bear much fruit, prove to be his disciples. And the reason is because Jesus is the vine and they're his branches. He's supplying the nourishment that enables the fruit. So the way that you know that a person is in Jesus is by whether or not they bear Christ-like fruit. Well, as Jesus concludes this discussion of the vine and the branches, listen to what he says in verses 18 through 20. Jesus concludes this section on how the branch bears fruit as it abides in the vine. And he says, verses 18 through 20, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So are you sensing a theme here? Being in Christ means looking like Christ. And there's only one way that can end under the current state of affairs, and that's suffering. I've said that we're trying to understand where the strength to endure suffering comes from. And of course, we've seen part of this answer through Paul's motivation to attain the resurrection from the dead. And that's certainly one source of endurance. Endurance comes as we treasure what we have to gain in Christ over and above the joys of this world. But listen again to John Hooper. Why did he think that he would be able to endure the flames of his martyrdom? That's not normal, right? To stand in a fire without moving. I mean, he, he, and that's what he did. I mean, he, he stood there in agony, certainly, and yet steadfast and faithful to the very end. How did he do that? Where was that strength coming from? Listen to what he said to the executioner one more time. He said, Ye have no need thus to trouble yourselves. For I doubt not, but God will give me strength sufficient to abide the extremity of the fire, without bands notwithstanding. Suspecting the frailty and weakness of the flesh, but having assured confidence in God's strength, I am content ye do as ye shall think good. So where did he think the strength to do that was going to come from? It was from God. Listen, when you see Hooper stand in the flames steadfast, when you see him go to the stake willingly and calmly like a lamb, led to the slaughter, what you're seeing is not John Hooper, but Christ Jesus in John Hooper. 
If you want to understand why Christians still suffer so much after the resurrection, this is the answer. That's because what you're seeing there is evidence of the resurrected Christ in them. They share in the life of Christ, in his power over sin, and the result is that they're met with fierce opposition from the world. It says Paul describes in Colossians 1.24, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, for in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. When Paul talks about filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, the idea is that the world could only kill Jesus once. And so now the way they go after him is through his people, who not only bear the marks of his righteousness, but now also along with it, his sufferings. So this is what Paul means about wanting to share in Christ's sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible he might attain the resurrection of the dead. Paul's got his eyes on the prize. And that's the resurrection. He wants to be raised with Christ. And since the resurrection occurs by being in union with Christ, Paul understands that this means sharing in his sufferings. In other words, salvation has a cost. Yes, it is a gift. It's something we receive freely. And yet the effects of salvation are quite costly. As I've heard it said before, salvation is free, but it will cost you everything. Paul understands the math in that equation, and he says, that's a trade I'm willing to make. I'll share in Christ's sufferings so that I can be found in Christ and so attain the resurrection from the dead. Let me tell you, that will change the way you see suffering. If you get that, that will change the way you see suffering. Again, the Philippians' problem is that they think suffering is bad. That's not the way Paul sees it. Do you know how Paul sees it? For him, persecution, rejection, suffering for the sake of Christ, that's all a confirmation to the fact that one day he's going to be raised from the dead. And that fills him with inexpressible hope and joy, and it actually fuels him in his desire to be faithful to Christ. And if you think I'm making this up, listen to what he says, Romans 5. Listen to it with fresh eyes. Romans 5, 1 through 5, he says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. He says, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Again, he says that we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? It's because suffering produces endurance, which produces character, which produces hope. And why is that? Where is this hope coming from? He says because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Those sufferings point to the fact that they've been given the Holy Spirit and they're in Christ. So it's been nearly 2,000 years. And Christ hasn't returned and His people still suffer. How do we interpret all of that? Well, we interpret it as Paul does. It's evidence to the fact that Christ lives in us. You want proof of the resurrection? When there's no longer an empty tomb, look no further than the church. 
The church continues to testify to the risen Christ, first by her conduct and then second by the sufferings which follow. And with that in mind, I'd like to close with three questions this morning. Question number one, do you want to be raised with Christ? Do you want to be raised with Christ? Because if so, then you need to understand that you need to prepare to share in His life and suffer with Him. That's what Jesus says Himself in Matthew 16, 24 and 25. He says, and I quote, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Yes, salvation is free. And all that one must do to receive it is believe. So if you don't currently have a relationship with Christ, you can have one here this morning. All you have to do is place your faith in Christ, identify yourself with Him, and He will take on your debts so that you can receive His inheritance. And that includes eternal life with God in heaven. It includes the resurrection from the dead. Just understand that identifying with Christ means being made like Him. And being made like Him inevitably leads to suffering. Sometimes great suffering. In fact, it's for this very reason that Jesus often didn't urge people to hurry up and become a disciple. Instead, He often told them to slow down and count the cost and be sure that they really wanted what He was offering. Because what He's offering is union with Him. And that's certainly great news in the, in the sense that it promises participation in the resurrection. But it also means becoming like Him in His death as well. So do you want to participate in the resurrection? Because if so, you need to count the cost and consider whether or not you're ready to pay the price that comes with it. Question number two. Are you currently suffering for the cause of Christ? Are you currently suffering for the cause of Christ? Because if so, then I'd encourage you, don't despair. And whatever you do, don't try to avoid it. Instead, rejoice in the fact that it means that Christ dwells in you and that you therefore have waiting before you this inexpressibly wonderful gift. It's like what Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 14. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. He says, If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Christian, let this hope fuel you as it fueled Paul to run still harder for the sake of the gospel so that you may, by any means possible, attain the resurrection from the dead. Question number three. Are you not suffering for the cause of Christ? Are you not suffering for the cause of Christ? Because if not, it's probably worth asking, why not? Now understand what I'm asking you here. I'm not asking you if someone wants to burn you at the stake. Because by suffering, we're not necessarily talking about martyrdom. So again, 
Understand me, I'm not saying you need to go and be a John Hooper. Not even John Hooper was a John Hooper until Queen Mary took the throne. Certain conditions need to be in place before you're going to experience that kind of suffering. And I would say that's most definitely not the type of conditions that we're living in here today in America. So I'm not asking you if people want to put you in jail for your faith or something like that because that just isn't the type of culture we live in. Ours is a culture, rather, that was founded by people who did suffer like that, and the result is that it's still generally very friendly towards Christian principles. And neither am I encouraging you to go out and act like an obnoxious Christian simply so people won't like you. Peter discourages us from that. He says that we should only suffer for the sake of righteousness and not for doing evil. All I'm saying is there should probably be at least a couple of people in your life who aren't too keen on you because of your relationship with Jesus. There should probably be at least some relationships that are at least a little uncomfortable because of your faith in Christ. And if not, then perhaps you need to go back and consider again that first question I just asked about whether or not you want to participate in the resurrection. Because there's simply no way of getting around it. The Scripture says that all, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And this morning we've seen why. It's, it's because that's the inevitable result of Christ's likeness. So if you're not suffering in any way for the gospel, it may be worth going back and asking if maybe it's because there isn't enough of Christ in you to be worth rejecting. Again, perhaps it even means that you don't have a relationship with Christ. He doesn't know you. Because this kind of suffering, it's one of the inevitable marks of the Christian. It's one of the signs of your union with Christ. Let's close this morning by praying that God would enable us to embrace both the suffering and the life that's in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.